verses 1 through 11. And then if you take out your bulletins, inside the bulletins there should be a piece of paper with notes on the front and back. Those highlighted in bold will be the verses that we're going to be reading in Ecclesiastes this morning. We're going to be doing a, a bird's eye view, kind of a one snapshot picture of the entire book. So we have certain key themes we'll be covering, and they're in order. So as we're going along, I'll mention them and you can turn to them so they'll be before you before we go there. So the scripture reading this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place of where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done, what, uh, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. This concludes the reading of God's word this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the portion of your word that was read and heard read this morning. Lord, as Solomon said, if we just look at the things of this world, it is all futile and vanity. Pray that you will help us to see this morning where our true treasure and riches lie, and that is in you. I ask that you be with Ben this morning, that you'll give him your words to speak, that we will hear that message and apply it to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning is going to be a summary of this book, a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Most likely the author of this book is King Solomon. It's been said that the book of Proverbs gives us the normal rules for life, and the book of Ecclesiastes talks about the exceptions to those rules, when things in this world do not seem to be making sense. Now, the tone of this book is pessimistic, if you read it, but it's a type of pessimism that's still rooted and founded in the Word of God and His promises. It's the author never doubts God's sovereignty, He's just pointing out how things look from a human perspective, when things look bleak. Rather than saying what ought to be, what the author of Ecclesiastes is describing is what actually is, or what actually appears to be on the outlook as we look out in life. The book of Job illustrates the things that Ecclesiastes talks about. The fact that Job's experience did not fit into the normal categories of life. Ecclesiastes deals with these exceptions, reminding us that we cannot interact with people in the world and simply think that one size fits all. 
Life under the sun, as we've already experienced it in life, and I think everybody in here could say this, sometimes it just it doesn't make sense. From our limited viewpoint, contradictions seem to be arising all around us. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't shy away from this fact. So at home, we might close the curtains, we might shut the door, we might direct traffic around certain places in our house that may not be kept up, that may be messy. But Ecclesiastes, it doesn't do this. It shines the light into the clean rooms as well as into the dark rooms. It's exposing the entire picture. It's not shying away from the difficult subjects in life. It urges us to meditate upon the reality of life under the sun in this present evil age. It doesn't describe life how we expect it, or doesn't describe life how we desire it to be. Rather, it presents life as it actually is. As Christians, Ecclesiastes can teach us something very important. It can teach us how to relate with people who are suffering and struggling in this world. You can call this wisdom outreach. The book causes us to take off our religious persona, thinking that we have all of the answers. We do have the truth in the Word of God, but there's some things that happen in life where it just leaves us scratching our head. And with this wisdom that Ecclesiastes gives us, we can relate with people who are struggling in this world outside of a Christian worldview. What the book of Ecclesiastes is doing is it's inspired scripture. So it's showing us that the Lord has empathy upon those who are struggling. Empathy for those who are wondering what the answer may be. He understands what we're going through. He's there, right there with us. It's not as if he's this concept of a God who's very far away as we're experiencing these difficult times in life. Rather, the Lord is inspiring scripture for us to understand that, yes, from a human perspective, things are confusing, but if we're resting in the promises of God, the Lord provides us a way to get through those tough times. So making it personal this morning, two perspectives that you can see in this book. The first one, the struggle of the person who lives life outside of the Christian worldview. The person who is going through this life without a Bible. For the individual who believes that we are here by random chance, through processes of evolution, who believes that man is completely free from any outside influence, that he's completely self-autonomous. There is nothing that he is accountable to. For the person who believes that there are no absolute standards, that there's no point of life, that there's no meaning to life, that life is nothing but something for you to fulfill your own passions and your desires. When faced with death and suffering, death is nobody's favorite subject to talk about. I've never met a person who likes to talk about death, and I've never met a person who likes to suffer. But these are the realities we face in life. The person outside of a Christian worldview. Generally, most people do what they avoid talking about these subjects. They come up with cliche phrases. They have a way to dismiss these realities that everybody has to endure in life. And the person who is going through these struggles outside of a Christian framework, outside of the Bible there to um, guide them and to ground them, when the wisdom of this world fails for them, 
when life's realities catch up and they're faced with a time of suffering or they're faced with a time of death, when the quick one-sentence answers fail, when they no longer can ignore the problems, the reality of this is their personal beliefs will not hold them together. It will not be enough to keep them through. It will not be enough to keep their head above water. They're going to sink. It's going to break them. The person outside of the Christian worldview. Now the person who is within the Christian worldview, who holds to the realities of the biblical God, that he's creator and Lord of all things, he's sovereign over his entire creation, has a saving relationship with Christ, all of these things, for the person within that worldview, yet at times face multiple struggles, tragedies, heartaches. They go through the same type of emotional experiences that the person who is not saved goes through. When they see the wicked prospering while they're suffering for Christ, when all of this evil that they see seems to be going unnoticed, when good things happen to bad people, when bad things happen to good people, you struggle with this world and you see the evil and you ask, what's the point of all of this while we struggle, while the evil man seems to be prospering? So the person who's outside of the biblical worldview has a big problem. They don't have any answers. They're just going through life according to their own desires. The person with the biblical worldview still faces tragedy, still faces heartache, to the point where he steps back and he thinks to himself, what's going on here? So both camps have this struggle, and Ecclesiastes deals with this. Now look in the first verse we're going to go to, Ecclesiastes 1-2. Notice what Solomon says here. He says, vanity, vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now the word vanity is used 38 times throughout this book. Because outside of the biblical worldview, all life is meaningless. There is no point of your existence if you only hear by random chance. You are only here because of an accident. But even those who are within the biblical worldview at times may still feel like things are nothing but vanity. From our own infinite and limited understanding, we struggle with how of all of our blood, sweat, tears, everything we struggle with, and tribulations. We struggle to see how this all works together for our good, as Romans 8.28 tells us. We struggle when we see the wicked person prospering and seems to be living life to his fullest while we're struggling here in the flesh. Now what God is requiring out of all of this is wisdom. Not just knowledge, not just wisdom that's gained by experience, but biblical godly knowledge. Look at Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been all over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what we're seeing here is Solomon has traveled the entire world He's traveled all over the place. 
And all of this doing, he saw the same thing wherever he went. All is vanity. The toil, the hard labor, the busyness of life, hopes, joys, the expectations. And in Ecclesiastes 2.1, he summarizes this conclusion. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So without godly wisdom, which has its foundations in the 66 books of the Bible, you will never be able to properly interpret and understand the reality of life. Evil, suffering, truth, morality, any of these concepts, if it is not godly wisdom that is instructing us, this world is a very bleak place. Without Christ at the center, life is meaningless. You live, you do the best you can, whatever that is for the individual, and then you die. The question is, what's the point? So godly or biblical wisdom is required for us in order for us to correctly understand our surroundings and our circumstances, to defend the Christian faith, to endure through trials, to enjoy the life that God has given us, to find meaning and hope, to train up our kids in righteousness. We often think, why do we do the things that we do? Why am I doing this? There has to be a reason. There has to be a purpose. There has to be a foundation or a principle by which I'm following. There has to be true meaning and true hope. Why is this that we do what we do? Because the foundation of it comes from biblical wisdom. God teaches us these things. We have our reference point in God. But if we take the Bible out, if we take out the Christian worldview, why are we doing the things that we're doing? Life seems vain. It seems meaningless. It seems pointless. Even within the Christian worldview at times, we feel this struggle. This is what Solomon's emphasizing in this book of Ecclesiastes here. Now, difficult things to consider. What do people struggle with? Solomon mentions that the wise man dies just like the fool. So the question is, what is the point of living a good, moral, and honest life if we end up in the grave at the end? Look at 2.16. Solomon says, For of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing in that the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. What Solomon's saying here is nobody remembers either the fool or the wise after they die. Whether a person is wise or foolish, there is no escape from death. No matter how hard you try in life, you will never leave your mark. And this is what many people of the world try to do. They want to leave their mark. They want to have something to be remembered by. And what Solomon's saying here is if you're living for that purpose, it's going to be forgotten within a generation or two. The question comes up from the world, then why do good at all? Look at Ecclesiastes 9.2. Solomon continues. It is the same for us all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he, as he who shuns an oath. So the question is, if there is no God to administer justice, if there are no consequences for our actions, and the wise dies just like the fool, 
Again, from the world's perspective, outside of the biblical worldview, what's the point? Now, for those who live for their bank accounts, for material possessions, for their investments, now I'm not saying these are bad things, but if this is your idol, if this is your main focus in life, Solomon deals with this as well. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, 15 through 16. Solomon says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So again, the question, if you spent your whole life attaining a certain amount of material wealth and possessions and you die and you don't take it with you, if that is your sole focus in life, you have to step back and ask the question, what was the point of all my labor and toil? And this, as Solomon traveled the world, he saw this within every culture he faced. Now for those who are oppressed, for those who are suffering, or maybe experiencing Christian persecution, or maybe genocide, Ecclesiastes 4.1, Solomon says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Which kind of reminds me of the 20th century. Over 100 million people were killed under extreme political oppression. And we ask ourselves, where is the justice? Or since 1973 here in America, we've had over 50 million babies aborted. We ask the question, where is the justice? How long, O oh Lord? Or in North Korea, where people are starved by their government, they're so hungry, they peel the bark off the trees and eat it because that's how hungry they are. People are dying from starvation. We ask, how long, O oh Lord? These are serious questions to consider, but a lot of times we just push them aside because of how intense they are, and we just continue on with our life as though they're not happening. Solomon, as he traveled the world, noticed these things, and he's taking these things head on. So how do we rationalize this? How do we come to any sort of basis or conclusion as to what's going on? When Solomon's talking about having a biblical worldview and having godly wisdom, there's a consequence if you're going to take a look at the world's problems and you're looking at it through a different pair of eyes than what the Lord has. If we're looking at it through a different source of information or a different source of authority than what the Bible says, there are consequences to this. If we set aside the Bible and just take a look at life purely through man's perspective, man does two things with God. The first thing he does is he'll deny his existence, or the second thing he'll do is he'll blame God for the problems that happen in this world. This is why we have to acquire God's wisdom. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one whom I look, he who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my every word. So the second we walk away from God's word, the second we take away God's word and we look at this world purely from our own intellect and purely from our own experience, the question is what happens when we reject this godly wisdom? 
where do we end up? And here are some examples. I'll read this for you this morning. This is Professor Will Provine, professor of history at the um, professor of the history at Cornell University. He says there are no gods, no life after death, no ultimate meaning. You are here today and you're gone tomorrow, and that's all there is to it. You give up hope in there being any imminent reality. There is no hope whatsoever in there being any deep meaning in life. You live, you die, and you are forever gone. And this is what Solomon was noticing throughout the entire world, that if you take God out of the equation, what are you left with? Exactly what this professor did. He ended up denying God's existence. Many of you may have heard of Bart Ehrman, professor at North Carolina, got his Ph.D. at Princeton Seminary. Claimed to be a Christian most of the way through seminary, but as he was getting towards the end, it wasn't the lack of evidence that turned him away from the Christian faith. What it was is he rejected God because of the idea of a loving and powerful God, and yet there being all this suffering in the world. Here's what he says. Suffering increasingly became a problem for me and my faith. How can one explain all the pain and misery in the world if God, the creator and redeemer of all, is sovereign over it, exercising his will on the grand scheme and in the daily workings of our lives. Why, I asked, is there such rampant starvation in the world? This led him away from the faith, and he's now one of the leading critics against the Bible. He writes book after book after book, trying to refute and explain away Christianity and the Bible because he faced this problem of suffering and evil without the humility and submission to God's word. He ended up denying his existence or blaming him for it. Popular astrophysicist, many of you may have heard of Neil deGrasse Tyson, interview on CBS this morning, talking about all the floods, all the hurricanes, all of the starvation in the world. He says, how do you deal with that? If there is a God, he cannot be powerful or all good. I remain unconvinced. And these are the leading scholars, these are the leading people who will go on the talk shows, who will be in the magazines, who will be interviewed on the news, who they put on the front page for this culture to read and for this culture to see. And this is what gets fed into society when we are faced with the difficult things of this life outside of being grounded in God's word. Notice it wasn't the science or it wasn't the evidence that turned people away from God. That's always what they say, but when you get to the heart of the matter, that's not what it is. It's the inability to properly understand who God is and how he sovereignly rules over his creation. It is the lack of wisdom in who God is and how he governs over his creation. It's the lack of reverence for the Lord. And it is the hardness of heart, the sin that lies within, that turns away from God and blames him from the problems. And the results are either they deny him or they blame him for the problems. Solomon identifies this. If you look at Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, the key to the problem, where Solomon finds his hope. This wasn't new in Solomon's day. This isn't something that just happened in the past 100 to 200 years in our culture. This was something that was very prominent in Solomon's time as well. In Ecclesiastes 8, 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will they prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not 
fear before God. Here is the crux of the problem. Proverbs 1.7, same author, Solomon, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in order to have the wisdom of God to be able to properly interpret the evil and suffering that we see in this world, you must first fear before him. The opposite of fear is to be foolish and to, and to despise this wisdom. So what does it mean to fear God? It means to revere him. It means to adore him. It means to worship him, to completely humble yourself before him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if we want to get an insight into who God is, an understanding of why he does what he does, we have to come to Scripture. If you want to understand his ways, you have to see how he has described himself from his perspective. And this is where the sin takes over. This is where the spiritually dead cannot do because everything that they look at is from their perspective. The Christian looks at this world through God's perspective. We are not the judge. God is not on the witness stand. God is not under a microscope where man can just peer into it and observe who God is. It's the other way around. Man is not the center of the universe. Humanity does not determine what is right and wrong and then turn around and place that back upon God. It's the other way around. God determines what is right and wrong. And we have to read this. We have to understand this as we come humbly before the scriptures and as we allow the scriptures to teach, the scriptures to influence, the scriptures to conform us to his will, these things start to fall into place. We may not have all of the answers, but we have the proper foundation by which we can live life 100% completely in the faith of what he has promised. So what does the Bible say about God, evil, and suffering? If we're going to apply about biblical wisdom in this, we have to know what it says. Notice Ecclesiastes 7.14. Solomon answers this for us. He says, In the day of prosperity... Be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So what we're seeing here is when we're experiencing joys and blessings and happiness, God has made that. He has brought that to pass. But the adversity that we face in life, God has also brought that to pass. And we have to keep this in mind. God is completely sovereign over the whole picture. He's completely loving, he's completely powerful, he's completely just. He hasn't changed. Our perspectives may have changed, our emotions may have changed, but God has not. He's still 100% in control. Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I, wake, I make well-being and create calamity. I, the Lord, who does all of these things. So we see the good things and the blessings from the hand of God. But the adversity and the struggles in this life also come to pass by the hand of the Lord. So then people start to think, okay, so God's to be blamed, and the answer is no. And this is the hard thing. This is where people struggle. Because people think, okay, if God is sovereign, then he is to be blamed. Or if God is in control and this happened, then he lacks a certain attribute. Those are false conclusions. This is what happens when our reasoning and our minds and our sinful hearts override what the Bible teaches about who God is. Yes, from him, through him, and to him 
are all things. But he is not to be blamed for the evil that takes place in this world. James 1 says God does not tempt anybody, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The moral evil belongs to the individual. The moral evil belongs to humanity 100%, even though God uses it as a part of his overall plan. And this is what people struggle with. This is what makes people angry. They just can't wrap their mind around this. And because they cannot do so, they reject biblical wisdom, and they end up in one of the three categories that we just looked at through the quotes of those men we quoted. It just doesn't make sense and they become angry. Rather than being humble and broken before the Lord, they fight against him. We sin because we want to, not because God makes us to. And yet God brings all things to pass. God is all-powerful, he is all-loving, but one characteristic, especially within the past 50 to 100 years, he's also completely just. And the justice of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God are not popular topics within the church today. We love to read the blessings. We love to read the promises. Those are excellent things. But at the same time, God is also just, and he's also judging. So he's using things for his purposes, either to bless or to judge. Now, we don't know which one these are. We can't peer behind the veil and see what this is, but God is working all of these things through. He has a morally good and sufficient reason for why evil is taking place in this world even though we may not understand why or how he does. We simply don't have the ability to understand this. God has kept this for himself. And that's the tension point with most people. And this is what makes people angry. They don't fear him. They become angry with him. Remember, why do natural disasters happen? Hurricanes, tornadoes, all of these things that Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about. Why do they happen? It is because man has rebelled against God We saw it in Genesis 3, the curse has come upon the earth, and man continually, continuously rebels against God. And if it wasn't for God's grace, we would have destroyed ourselves a long, long time ago. We would not be able to sustain life if God was not supernaturally intervening with his common grace. We would have destroyed ourselves. We brought sin, we brought death, We brought evil into this world. God is not to be blamed. Look at Ecclesiastes 7.28. Solomon backs up this point. He says, See, this I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the reason why there's evil and suffering in this world is it's because of our sin. It's a consequence of our rebellion against God. That's why. Yes, the Lord is sovereign over over it, He is using it for his plans and his purposes, but the evil and the responsibility of it lies 100% at our feet. God is perfectly just for bringing about the good times as well as the bad. The confusion comes in is from our perspective, like Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes, sometimes the evil seems to be much higher than the good. And a lot of times that's coming from our own limited, finite perspective. And when we start to rationalize these things and we start to break away from the promises that God has made in Scripture and start to look at this through our own reasoning process, that's when sin starts to conceive inside of our heart and we start to rebel against God. So the Christian's humility, 
We understand that we do not have all of the answers for pain and suffering in this world. Why bad things happen to good people. Why good things happen to bad people. But we know God is sovereign in control of all things. Interestingly, God is not obligated to give us the details on all things. He has kept these things for his purposes. And if we think for a second that if he told us, what makes us think that we would be able to understand the infinite mind of God, even if he did attempt to explain it to us? Would we get it? Would we even understand? Look what we have right now. Look at the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is an absolutely fascinating doctrine. Difficult to understand. Three, one, you know, the hype, all of those things. Man has struggled with this, if you read church history, of completely coming to an understanding. Different cults have formed from a misunderstanding of the Trinity or from the Incarnation. Or look at all the views of eschatology that we see out there today. The Lord has given us plenty to chew on in his word. If you were to continue to do this and to explain why he does what he does in any level of degree or manner, would we have the ability to even understand it? And I would say no. His mind is infinite. Our finite minds do not have the capacity to understand how an infinite God is working in life. And we have to be humble and we have to admit this and submit to the Lord in this. We walk by faith in the promises of God and not in our own reasoning abilities. We must be careful not to go far in either direction by either denying his attributes or blaming him for the problems. These are the two areas where people go. If you break away from the Bible, you're either going to blame God for the sin or you're going to think he doesn't exist. Those are the two consequences. So understanding this, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, what's his conclusion? Again, he traveled the world back. Life isn't logical. Life isn't sensible. Life doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always fit into these nice categories that we would like it to be. Faith is what brings us through the inconsistencies. We live by the promises of God and his explanations. We understand this. So what's Solomon's conclusion? Here's his conclusion, and we'll finish on this, and I think most of these will be on the backside of your um, insert. Solomon's conclusion to all of what he has said is to accept life as God's gift, and enjoy it in his will. To accept life as God's gift, and to enjoy it according to his will. Look at Ecclesiastes 2.24. And he says this throughout Ecclesiastes. He repeats himself, and we'll be taking a look at these verses here. Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So Solomon's not promoting the idea of fatalism, of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's saying here. That's the philosophy of fatalism. Rather, he is saying, thank God for what you do have, for what he has given you, and enjoy this and in glorifying him. With all the evil and suffering that's taking place in this world, give thanks to God for what he has blessed you with on a daily basis. The answer is not to be found in the material things. This leaves us cold. It leaves us empty inside. We must have the proper character and attitude to receive God's blessings and a humble heart to enjoy them with reverence and thanksgiving. Because apart from God, there is no true happiness in life. Solomon continues, 322. 
So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Notice what he says, for that is his lot. Normally when you hear somebody talk about, that's my lot in life, they're complaining. This is what I got to deal with. This is what I have to struggle with. This is my lot. They're complaining about it. Notice the unthankful heart that is behind that statement. It's because they are not thankful for what the Lord has given them that they're um, rebelling in their bitterness. Accept what God has given you. Enjoy it to its fullest. He has appointed the time in which you live. He has appointed the number of days in your life, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your parents, your children. He has given you all of these blessings already. And this is what we are to rest in, and this is what we are to be thankful in, and this is what we are to be glorifying him in. The blessings that he's given us at this present moment. All of these blessings are from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 5.18 Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him. And again he says, for this is his lot. The person who is content and rejoices in God's daily blessings will never have regrets. The person who is content and rejoices in what the Lord has blessed him with today will not have regrets for tomorrow. The person who, who rests in the daily provisions of God will not be worrying about what is happening tomorrow, will not become anxious, will not become discontent. They won't create that idol in their heart to reach after something that the Lord hasn't given them because they're happy and they're thanking God for what God has given them today. The person who is thankful for what God has already given them will not idle after material possessions. For each day will be a blessing, something to be enjoyed, not something to be loathed and something they have to endure. So the difference is, is something that we see from God, is it a blessing or is something that we see from God something we have to endure? We're not happy, we're not content, we strive after more. And it's this striving and this discontent, unthankful heart that brings that bitterness within us. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Solomon says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So Solomon's wisdom concludes with this. It concludes within this present moment, right now, today. We are thankful. We are rejoicing in what God has given us. And we are taking the blessings, blessings that God has given us and we're using it according to his will. Yes, the evil and the suffering are out there. Yes, he works all things for our good. The promises of God create that foundation for us. We don't have all of the answers, but we can reflect the love, we can reflect the compassion of who God is to a world that is suffering, to a world that doesn't have the answers, to the world that's scratching its head because every time they attempt to find a meaning in life outside of the Bible, they've come up empty. And this is what we have to bring back. Enjoy every occasion in life that God blesses you with. 
the small things in life. Family dinner, your wife, your husband, your job. For if we fear God and walk by faith, we will enjoy life rather than trying to escape it or trying to just merely endure it. So this is what Solomon was emphasizing. Rather than blindly hoping for something better in the future, because death happens to us all, there are no opportunities after this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom, and we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and going there, Lord, where most people do not like to think about the meaning and the point of life. From a purely humanistic standpoint, all things are vanity. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. Lord, from a Christian worldview, we understand the meaning and purpose. We rest in your promises. Lord, in the difficulties and the trials and in the temptations that we endure, we pray, Lord, when things don't make sense, when we don't feel your presence, or when we have this temptation to become angry with you, we pray we recognize this and repent and humbly, Lord, come before you asking for your wisdom, asking for your guidance, asking for your Holy Spirit to teach us within our souls through your word that your promises can never be broken, that you do work out all things for our good. Lord, that we have to rest in these promises. And rather, Lord, than looking at life of things, looking at material possessions and lusting after them, or looking at life as if we need more to fulfill us, to be thankful, Lord, for what you have given us, to rest, Lord, in what you've given us, and to bless you with it and honor you with it with a thankful heart. Lord, I'd just like to lift up anybody in the congregation this morning, Lord, you see everybody's hearts. Lord, it's those who have been struggling. Lord, it's those who have been looking for answers that they stay grounded and rooted in your word. Lord, and to take away that heart of bitterness, Lord, and turn it into a heart of thanksgiving, knowing all these things work to our good. Asking this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.